Wednesday, August 6th, 1890, was a highly anticipated day in Gilded Age, New York. During a time period where people lusted after entertainment and big news, history was to be made. Convicted murderer William Kemmler was scheduled to die that evening. Executions were fairly routine in that era around the United States, but not this one. Kemmler was about to become the first person in American history to die by electrocution, and the public was eager to hear more about the chair of death that would be used to do the job. The Evening World, one of New York's prominent newspapers of that time period, put out an extra that night which was sparse on details of the execution, but did have a few interesting nuggets of information. One being that, quote, Despite the secrecy in all of the preparations, a crowd of horror hunters had scented out something near the hour for the execution and gathered outside of the Iron Gate, gaping through the bars. It's interesting that the world described these curious onlookers as horror hunters, because whether they knew it or not, a scene of real horror was playing out inside of the specially appointed room where the electrocution was occurring. We'll get to that in time, but this quote from the Times, a newspaper out of Michigan, encapsulates the moment well. Faces grew white, and forms fell back from their chairs. While this is all fascinating in and of itself, it becomes downright strange when you learn who the inventor of the electric chair was, and why he developed it. The man was Thomas Edison, and he did so as part of a marketing ploy to discredit his competitors. Yeah. Really. Thank you for tuning in to Scattered Through Time, where we delve into some of history's quirkiest, most underappreciated, and exciting tales. I'm your host, John Mayle, and I'm thrilled to bring you all of the things you didn't know that you didn't know. When telling this story, it's fully feasible to go back to Ben Franklin and his kite. But for the sake of time, we're going to speed things up a bit and head to Menlo Park, New Jersey in the second half of the 1800s and talk about its most famous resident. Thomas Edison is one of the most prolific inventors of all time, anywhere. Thomas Edison was granted 1,093 patents during his lifetime, the most by an American. He first came on the scene in a major way in 1877, when he debuted the phonograph to a shocked public who had never experienced recorded sound before. The 30-year-old was already being hailed as a genius and a revolutionary, well before his most significant societal contributions would come along. At his peak, Edison went into what he called the invention business, and opened a well-staffed workshop in Menlo Park where he famously said they would produce a minor invention every 10 days and a big thing every six months or so. Incredibly, Edison delivered on that promise and went on a scientific run that rivals Einstein's miracle year of 1905. The group's greatest triumph came in 1879 when Edison debuted the first ever long-lasting, commercially viable electric light bulb after testing 3,000 different designs for the previous few years. On New Year's Eve, 
The people of Tiny Menlo Park were dazzled when he threw the switch and lit up his invention factory and the surrounding streets in the warm glow of artificial light. The way Americans went about their everyday lives was about to take a major turn, as they no longer had to rely on dirty, noxious gas lamps that would give off toxic fumes and leave black residue on furniture and carpeting, and they would also explode. For the first time, the end of daylight didn't signal the end of the day, and Americans immediately began to obsess over the newest industrial age craze, clean, safe light. Of course, lighting up one building is really cool, but Edison knew that in order to show the full potential of his light bulb, he would need to think bigger. On September 4th, 1882, Edison would successfully complete his most ambitious project, lighting up a city block in New York from his Pearl Street power station. The coal-fired station was a spectacle to behold, and it was serving more than 500 customers by 1884. The reason you got all of that background information is to give you context as to what Edison's reputation was like by the time we get to the late 1880s. He was one of the most beloved and revered men in the country at that time, and seen as a genius who has bettered the lives of millions of people. It can be hard to compete against that in a corporate setting, but that didn't mean George Westinghouse wasn't going to try. He believed that he had technology that was more consumer-friendly and feasible than Edison's. Edison powered the Pearl Street plant with direct current, which moved from the plant directly to the home in one direction and powered the various items. Because Edison was so popular and trusted, this became the industry standard in the 1880s, but there were flaws. Direct current, or DC, could only travel over a short distance, meaning that there would need to be a noisy, black smoke-emitting power plant on every block in order to provide electricity in major markets. This is where Westinghouse saw an opening to make an inroad into the electricity market. He had purchased the rights from Nikola Tesla for his improvement to the new technology alternating current, which periodically changes direction, sending power back to the plant from the customers, which therefore allowed it to be sent over longer distances. This obviously made fiscal sense and meant that power plants could be moved out of the city and into more remote areas. Edison and his financier, J. Pierpont Morgan, initially weren't concerned about any sort of rivalry with Westinghouse and Tesla. After all, Edison was viewed as a wizard, and they had been first to the market with their DC power generators. Their greatest advantage was that, according to Edison, alternating current was dangerous. He believed that it would lead to many deaths wherever the high-voltage systems were installed. What would ensue would come to be known as the War of the Currents, where Edison and Westinghouse took extreme steps to convince the public that their system was superior. With J.P. Morgan constantly pressuring him to win the war, Edison threw himself into a campaign of negative propaganda that would represent the darkest time of his career. He grew obsessed with demonstrating the capacity for alternating current to kill while stressing the importance of safety with his direct current. In a letter to the head of the Edison Electrical Company, Edward Johnson, Edison wrote, The first man that touches a wire in a wet place is a dead man. Just as certain as death, Westinghouse will kill a customer within six months after he puts in a system of any size. He has got a new thing, 
and it will require a great deal of experimenting to get working practically. It will never be free from danger. None of his plans worry me in the least. The only thing that disturbs me is that Westinghouse is a great man for flooding the country with agents and travelers. He is ubiquitous. My impression is that except in very difficult places, we shouldn't use over 1200 volts. We must look out for crosses and such things for if we ever kill a customer, it would be a big blow to the business. 1200 volts continuous direct current will never do greater harm than blister the flesh, and I'll bet any amount over a thousand volts alternate current will kill certain. Edison's public warnings grew stronger and more common, including distributing pamphlets and leaflets in New York with the blaring headline, WARNING, and telling nasty stories of people being electrocuted, which was described as being Westinghouse. But the public was still infatuated with the convenience and low cost of AC. So he stepped up his efforts by staging the public executions of various animals like dogs, cats, and cows to demonstrate the dangers of AC to the public and how it should not find its way into the home. These experiments, proved to be effective at swaying public opinion, but they weren't the knockout punch that Edison and Morgan were seeking, as AC continued picking up contracts in towns and cities across America. Edison did genuinely believe that AC was a threat to the health of the public, but at this point, the war had become a battle of egos more than anything else, and Edison was determined to beat Westinghouse and his former employee Tesla. Then a letter arrived that changed everything. The state of New York had decided that hanging was a cruel and inhumane way to execute prisoners, and they were asking Edison if he believed that electricity would be an effective way to kill those on death row. For a man who had dedicated his life to inventions that would help people, this was a major turning point for Edison. Initially, he wasn't interested in undertaking the project, as he was opposed to the death penalty, but prodding from the New York government, the scientific community, and his investors forced his hand. Morgan saw this as a phenomenal opportunity to bury Westinghouse once and for all, so Edison agreed to build an electrocution device, but on the condition that it was powered by a Westinghouse AC generator. It was believed that this would provide the most effective voltage and current to kill with, and it would further convince the public that AC had no place in the home. After all, you wouldn't put a guillotine in your living room, or a gallows in your yard. Obviously, Westinghouse was incensed that Edison was planning on designing an electric chair using one of his generators, and he refused to sell one to the Edison camp. But an associate of Edison's managed to procure one, and work began on designing the device. Westinghouse even paid $100,000 for William Kemmler's legal defense in his appeal as he did not want the man to die at the hands of his product. Meanwhile, Edison settled on a simple approach. A chair would be outfitted with multiple points of contact, which were wired to a Westinghouse generator. With the assistance of wet sponges, more than 1,000 volts of current would pass through the body, killing the prisoner instantly. Edison delivered sworn testimony to a judge inquiring about the chair, which was chronicled in the Evening World on July 23, 1889 under the headline, It is Sure Death.
referring to the statement under oath of expert T. Carpenter Smith that he had survived a shock of more than 1,000 volts of electricity, Mr. Brown said, Mr. Edison will give Mr. Smith, who has won the name of Alex, $100 if he will visit his laboratory at Menlo Park and take a shock of 100 volts, and I will give him another $100. That is $200 for him if he wants it. Thomas A. Edison was sworn. He smiled from ear to ear and said he was an inventor and electrician and had been such for 26 years. He was familiar with dynamics and likened the continuous current to a water force which threw the water through a pipe and the intermittent or alternating electrical current to a flow of water which was reversed at stated intervals. The Westinghouse Dynamo alternates and reverses the electrical current about 150 times a second, he said. There are only these two kinds of currents used in electric lighting, but there are, perhaps, 20 different patterns or styles of machines. I should describe the machine known as the Wheatstone Bridge as an absolute measurement of electrical force, more accurate than a foot rule. In response to questions, Mr. Edison said he measured the resistance of 250 men at his laboratory a few days ago. They were clerks, electricians, laborers, and other employees of the laboratory, and the average resistance was 1,000 ohms. The highest was 1,800 and the lowest 660 ohms. The feat was made with two battery jars, 7 inches across and 10 inches deep, filled with a solution of potash and water, making soluble soap for a perfect contact. After a 30-second immersion of hands, the flugers touching the bottom, the measure was taken and 8 volts was as much as any one could stand. Those macabre experiments gave Edison the confidence that he needed to hawk his electric chair as a surefire method of execution. That confidence led to a remarkable moment in court that was chronicled by the world. Edison said, A burn is conclusive evidence of imperfect contact, the body receiving very little of the current. Now, said Deputy Attorney General Pote, slowly and deliberately, can an electrical current be introduced into the human body by artificial means sufficient to produce instant death, painless death, sure death? To each proposition, the sage of Menlo Park nodded his gray head. 1,000 volts would produce such a death by an alternating current or a much-interrupted continuous current, the latter produced by mechanical means. A continuous current has little effect on the nerves, 8 volts being hardly felt, while 3 volts of the other is as much as a man can stand, Edison said. The pressure is termed the volt, the amount of force, the amperage. Expert Pope testified that a killing current would carbonize the human body. The heat would be equal to boiling water. I don't understand that at all, said Mr. Edison. With proper electrodes, Death would be instantaneous, and the heat very little. A test of the resistance of water to 1300 volts showed only 9 degrees centigrade, a rise of 16 degrees Fahrenheit, and the resistance 800 ohms. It's clear that Edison felt very strongly that his killing device, powered by a Westinghouse generator, 
would be very effective in doing its job and would therefore prove once and for all that direct current was the safer, more reliable way to power America. He calmly explained that a body subjected to his killing current would be carbonized, with the water evaporating out of the dead in minutes, but insisted that the body wouldn't go up in an inferno or look drastically different. He did, however, concede that this sort of intentional electrocution had never taken place before, as was described in the world. Now, Mr. Edison, you say you have never seen a man killed by electricity. You know of such cases only by reading. You believe that a thousand volts would kill a human being. Really, you only believe it. You don't know it. That is so, responded Mr. Edison. And Mr. Cochrane wiped perspiration from his brow and puffed on his cigar in a fashion indicating intense relief and satisfaction, and Mr. Edison was permitted to return to his laboratory. Just a quick warning, this next part gets a bit graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Now the chair had been built and the execution day arrived. Everything went according to plan. Kemmler, a Buffalo native, had holes in his shirt and pants to allow for better contact for the current. He gave his last words, which were noted by the some two dozen reporters on hand to cover the historic moment, and then the process began of strapping him into the chair complete with a wet sponge at the top of his head to assist the current in passing through his body. When everything was set, the warden said, Goodbye, William, and the current was turned on. And that's where this story takes a turn towards the gross. The initial shock of 17 seconds sent Kemmler's body into convulsions, and the deputy coroner of New York said, quote, His shoulders slowly drew up, as they sometimes do in the case of a man who was hanging. After a 17-second shock, the two physicians in the room deemed Kemmler to have died and ordered the current to be turned off. When the two doctors, E.C. Spitzka and Carlos McDonald, approached the body to determine that Kemmler was truly dead, things got very dramatic very quickly. The Times newspaper from Michigan chronicles the events well. He's dead, said Dr. Spitzky calmly. Oh, he's dead re-echoed Dr. MacDonald with firm confidence. The rest of the witnesses nodded their acquiescence. There was no question in the mind of anyone but that the stiff, upright object before them was lifeless. Dr. Batch was bending over the body looking at the exposed skin. Suddenly he cried out sharply, MacDonald, see that rupture? In a moment, Dr. Spitzka and Dr. MacDonald had bent over and, looking where Dr. Batch was pointing at, a little red spot on the hand that rested on the right arm of the chair. The index finger of the hand had curved backwards as the flexor muscles contracted and it scraped a small hole in the skin at the base of the thumb on the back of the hand. There was nothing strange in this alone, but what was strange was that the little rupture was dropping blood. Turn the current on instantly! This man is not dead, cried out Dr. Spitzka. Faces grew white and forms fell back from their chair. Warden Durston sprang to the doorway and cried, Turn on the current! There was a rapid response, but quick as it was, it was not quick enough to anticipate the signs of what may or may not have been reviving consciousness. As the group of horror-stricken witnesses stood helplessly by, all eyes fixed on the chair. Kembler's lips began to drip spittle, and in a moment more, his chest moved, and from his mouth came a heavy, stertorous sound quickening and increasing with every respiration. 
if respiration it was. There was no voice but that of the warden, crying to the operator to turn on the current, and the wheezing sound, half-grown, which forced itself past the tightly closed lips, sounded through the still chamber with ghastly distinctness. Some of the witnesses turned away from the sight. One of them lay down, faint and sick. It takes a long, long time to tell the story. It seemed a long time reaching a climax. In reality, there were but 73 seconds in the interval which elapsed between the moment when the first sound issued from Kemmler's lips until the response to the signal came from the dynamo room. It came with the same suddenness that had marked the first shock which passed through Kemmler's body. The sound which had horrified the listeners about the chair was cut off sharply as the body once more became rigid. The slimy ooze still dropped from the mouth and ran slowly in three lines down the beard and onto the gray vest. Twice there were twitchings of the body as the electricians in the next room threw the current on and off. There was to be no mistake this time about the killing. The dynamo was run up to its highest speed and again and again the full current of 2,000 volts was sent through the body in the chair. I'll make it simple. The initial 700-volt shock to Kemmler didn't produce, quote, instant death, as Edison has claimed, but it did knock him unconscious, leading the doctors to falsely believe that Kemmler had perished. But people in the room noticed that Kemmler was bleeding from cracks in his hand, and then, horrifyingly, that he was still breathing and making a groaning sound. The warden had the current turned back on immediately, but the generator needed more time to charge, so Kemmler suffered in that state for more than a minute before the second charge was initiated. This one killed him, and also caused smoke to rise from his head and the smell of burning flesh to circulate around the room. It was a completely botched execution and an abject failure. Multiple reporters fainted and others got sick. When Westinghouse learned of what happened in the room that day, he famously responded by saying, quote, It has been a brutal affair. They could have done better with an axe. The first electricide, as the papers called it, was a total disaster. But Edison and Morgan were still hopeful that at the very least the goal of the public being turned off to the AC phenomenon could still be achievable. Instead, however, the only winners in this business battle were the makers of gas lamps and kerosene, as the public associated all electricity with danger, not just AC. This was about as terrible an outcome as possible and the still young industry was on the verge of collapsing. It took a mammoth effort to save home electricity. Nikola Tesla started giving show-stopping lectures around the country, where he let current pass through his body from his outstretched arms into wild arcs of electricity. And coupled with a massive propaganda campaign from Westinghouse, AC took the lead for good. Edison wouldn't give up quietly, even famously executing Topsy the Elephant in New York before a crowd of thousands using AC in 1903. But by then, it was clear that AC wasn't deadly outside of the electric chair, and that it was going to be the industry standard. Edison is still remembered as a great American, but this was by far the most disastrous and darkest era in a brilliant career. Can't get enough scattered through time? Follow us on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram at Scattered Through Time, all one word. 
and on Twitter at at ThruPodcast. I'm John Mail, and just a reminder that if you have a story you want told on the podcast, please reach out and I'll see what I can do. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.